Surfboard builder Donald Brink is in the midst of a six-part podcast series called Creative Kin. This week, he's speaking with Santa Cruz board builder and artist Travis Reynolds. I kind of like the idea of maybe my kids finding one of my boards at a yard sale, you know, in 50 years, or anybody finding one of my boards at a yard sale in 50 years, and it being like a score, like, I, this guy has a reputation for having a board that's going to last a long time, works really well. Donald's podcast is called Swell With My Soul, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Welcome back to Surf Splendor. I'm David Scales. Last week I mentioned that we'll be giving away a surfboard on May 1st. We do this as a thank you to those who donate to the show. All donors in the month of April will be entered to win, and the winner will only be responsible for any shipping costs incurred. The board will be made to your custom specs by Jeff Timponi in his Maui Leaf Light construction. It's a construction that starts with uh, solar-made foam or recycled foam, your choice, shaped and laminated with hemp cloth and bio-based resin, thereby generating less environmental impact than traditional board building materials. This is the third April in a row that we've actually done this, and it's to honor Earth Day, which lands on April 22nd this year. I've been riding one of these boards for the past year and a half, and um, had a really memorable session on it last month at Hanalei Bay, trading waves with today's podcast guest, Mark Sousen. I've been riding a 5'8 pill model, kind of an all-rounder, but built for Hawaiian surf. The model that Jeff will build for you is actually a channel-bottomed bat tail called the Nub. The gentleman ordered a board and he wanted kind of a, he wanted a bat tail fish. And then, uh, oh, can you throw some channels on it? And he just kind of left it up to me mostly to design the board. So I just took my existing templates and measurements and kind of put it together. You know, he, he was an older guy and, and as it turned out, he never even rode the board. He gave it to a mutual friend who could surf and Daniel mm-hmm. absolutely loved the board. Anyway, he gave it to Daniel with all five fins in it, how I delivered it to him, because I kind of wanted to give him all the options. He can ride as a thruster or a quad, whatever. Anyway, Daniel just took it out with all five fins in it and absolutely destroyed on it and loved it, and it's just been, it's been perpetuating itself as a design, the nub. So I've built a few more, and everyone, I just made some calls the other day, and everyone seems to love it. It's fast. It can handle some size. You know, it's got that kind of old-school flatter deck, fuller rail, but the boards are, you know, two and a half to two and three quarters, depending on the guys I've been building them for. You know, a couple of bigger guys have gotten them, and they're just stoked. You know, a little lower rocker, especially out the tail, but the channels seem to give it some lift and some thrust, you know. You know, I've been building the bat tails for quite a while. Like, but that on that wider version, because I want to say that has like almost a 12-inch tail tip to tip. But I lobbed off the corners, so the actual tip to tip is maybe 10 and a half. And the channels are each two and a half or three inches. 
It's got a really light concave from maybe like 18 inches back from the nose, back to a very light V out the tail, but it's got, oh, maybe my normal, it's probably got a half inch less tail rocker, but the boards are short. So you want to make sure that you know, if you put too much rocker in, that kind of feels sluggish paddling. And uh, the whole idea for the board was something really fast. And I think we've achieved that with the lower rocker and the channels. But uh, yeah, the, the original idea was this kind of this guy just threw it out there. And he had gotten a bunch of boards from me and loved all of them. And, and, and I think his last three had been leaf lights, right. which he really liked. And I think I know he's still riding them. So I'm, you know, most of it is rider feedback that I'm going off of. But these guys can surf. You know, they're not kooks. Yeah. And the leaf-like construction, I think, fits that design. You can see a version of the nub. Of course, yours will be built custom to your specs. But you can see a version of one on surfsplendorpodcast.com/donate, where we have a PayPal button for you to get in on this, or you can just Venmo to at surfsplendor. We recommend a $5 monthly donation, but any amount donated in the month of April 2020 will get you in. I've also linked to Timponi Surfboards there on our website so you can read up about their Maui Leaf Light construction. And a huge thank you to the Timponi family for donating this board, and a thank you to you listeners for keeping us in business. Board builder Mark Sousen is today's podcast guest. His label is Papa Sao. Sao is S-A-U, the first three letters of his surname, Sousen. And as is often the case, podcast listeners know more about surfing than I do. So when I mentioned on air that I was going to be going to Kauai, somebody emailed me to tell me to get Papa Sao on the podcast. And then his name actually came up repeatedly with each successive person that I spoke to uh, whenever I asked for advice about who I should interview on Kauai. And the reality is I kind of had trouble doing research on Mark. Uh, not a lot of information exists about him. He is not a great marketer. His website, papasaokawaii.com, gives you an error page saying that the server can't be found. His Facebook and Instagram pages have modest followings. But his boards, especially his high-performance longboards, are highly acclaimed because Mark has been fine-tuning his designs for the specific waves on Kauai for decades. He made it to Kauai in 1970. Born in 1949 in Laguna Beach, California, or actually maybe not. Well, I wasn't really growing up in Laguna. I was born in Minnesota. Oh, okay. And then I, my parents moved to California when I was eight years old. Okay. So the first beach I think I went to was like Newport Beach. Yep. And then, um, I, then they moved to San Diego. And I started surfing when I was 14 in San Diego, like okay. 1961. That's when the big surf surge happened, right? Mm-hmm. And so I got aboard, and I remember, I remember my first wave. I remember, remember, um, we rented a beach house in Old Mission in August every summer, and um, these sailors we called Swabies would come from the you know from Belmont Park area. They had rent boards and come down and try to surf. Well, a lot of them couldn't even handle an hour. They'd be taking their rentals back, and I could see that. So I went up to them, hey, can I, can I get your board? I'll bring it back for you. And they went, you sure? You better bring it back, kid. And I go, I, I promise I'll bring it back. Go, okay, take the board. So I was riding whitewater, and I started getting into it. I remember the first time I stood up on whitewater, I go, this is it. I'm doing this. And then I got a paper route board for like 50 bucks, an old Gordon and Smith. 
Oh. Yeah, and I ended up like surfing that at um, Old Mission, Pacific Beach, Crystal Pier. And then right when I was about 15 and a half, my parents said, we're moving. I said, where? San Francisco Bay Area. I said, well, where? And she goes, Danville. I go, Danville, where is that? So they, put, they, they brought me up to 50 miles inland, you know, inland in this school called San Ramon High. And I was just, I was sick. I was so depressed. I was like, are you kidding me? I go, I don't want to go. I told my mom, look, I got my friends. Mother said I could stay with them. I can live with them. I'm going to stay here in San Diego. She goes, no, you're coming with us. You'll do other, You'll find other things to do besides surfing. There's baseball. There's golf, you know. And so I'm just thinking, oh, There's no more anyway, baby. Mark got out of there as quickly as he could. He graduated in 1966, and despite wanting to get back to the beach as quickly as possible, the Vietnam War was 11 years into its 20-year duration, and Mark could avoid being sent to war if he went to college. So he stuck around in Northern California for a few years. He had gotten a car for graduation, so he was able to do the drive to the beaches around Santa Cruz. This was the log era, leashless, in cold water, in the warmer waters of Southern California beckoned. So in the summer of 1968, he did a trip south with a friend who was attending the University of San Diego. So we, we had uh, probably the most fun I've ever had in my entire life is that summer in 1968 in uh, Dana Point. Really? So because he, he lived in, he came from Monarch Bay and it, Salt Creek was kind of private back then. So you could just put a dollar on the clothespin and, and drive down there. And so, you know, I started surfing Salt Creek and then, you know, needed jobs. So we ended up working for a coast catamaran, Hobie Cats, and we were building boats. And so I remember when I f my friend uh, Jeff Hobbig was, you know, grew up in San Clemente and, and he would beat out Salt Creek. He goes, yeah, I'm going back to Kauai. He came uh, home for Christmas in 1969 and he goes, I'm going back to Kauai. You want to come with me? And I just got out of the draft because I was drafted. But then the lottery came out, and I got 346 was my number, which meant you're not going in. So it was intervention right there. I was like, all right, I'm going with you to Kauai. What's Kauai like? I just heard it was just rainy Garden Isle. He goes, no, there's great waves. There's Hanalei. And right then, I think 1969, Surfer Magazine came out with an article and showed Ching and Store with Tiger Aspera, showed Jimmy Lucas cutting back at the bowl. It showed uh, Taylor Camp, the front house. And he goes, that's where I live. I go, well, what's that like? He goes, it's it, it's unbelievable. It's tree houses. You don't need any money. You can just live off the land. There's fruit everywhere. And it's like, is this real? You know, so I went with him, but of course it wasn't as realistic as that. But it, it you know, it you there were a lot of was a lot of fruit and the and the Taylor Camp scene wasn't really my scene. Everybody walking around naked, full hippie scene, you know. But I mean it was pretty pretty unusual. And, you know, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I was like going, and I've never seen anything quite like this island. You know, I went to Maui in 68 and saw what Hawaii was like in 68. But I didn't last long, maybe two months. I ran out of money and had to leave. But Kauai was just like fascinating to me at that time. And I just went, I'm going to figure out how to live here. I don't care what it takes. Mm. You know, so ended up... Um, Part of something that I brought up in my last episode, and uh, it's something that will repeatedly return in all of my conversations in this series about Kauai is the issue of land ownership. 
It's a small island and land is of course a finite resource. The island is becoming increasingly popular. So here's one transplant story about land acquisition. As he stated, Mark landed here in 1970. In 1974, Mark started working for the Princeville Corporation. They had a 9,000 acre estate with a hotel, restaurants, and a recently finished golf course and plans for private residences on the resort property. Mark was working in one of their restaurants and the real estate office was right at the entry to the hotel, which Mark had to enter to get to the restaurant. While headed to a shift at the restaurant, the real estate agent would always shout over, hey Mark, you gotta buy some property. But Mark was barely getting by, barely able to pay his rent. The Princeville Corporation was offering employees 40% off land, golf course lots. But you still had to come up with the $8,000 down payment, of course in 1974 dollars. And to get that 40% discount, you'd have to allow Princeville Corp to do the financing at an 8% interest rate. Mark did all the math and he figured that his monthly payment would be an affordable $178. In the four years that Mark had been living and working on Kauai, he had been able to save up $5,000. So basically, all he had to do was come up with an extra $3,000 to get that golf course lot. Mark enlisted a buddy named Mike. Mike was from the mainland, he had some family money, they partnered together and Mark used Mike's additional $3,000 to secure the land. Mike came out to spend some time on Kauai, see his investment, but he wasn't fully accustomed or acclimated to the rugged country lifestyle of Kauai in the 70s. And one night, Mike got into an altercation with some locals and was beaten pretty severely. During the melee, an assailant kicked Mike in the chin and Mike bit his tongue nearly off. It wasn't his fault. It, what it was is I was getting ready to go to work. I said, hey, you can use my car, 69 Corolla. So he gets in the car to go to the store. He backs up and hits one of the local guy's cars when he backed up. Okay, the boys were in the um, partying big time in the condo right next door to mine. I was living at Princeville South Housing. And the, in the condo were all the bad boys. The, you know, the boys were ca caused a lot of trouble. So I was just like, I didn't know they were there. But I saw this one guy, and I'm not going to mention names, but he came out and he tried to like, he tried to punch out my friend Mike. So I come out of the shower and I look down and I see the guy just trying to, and he's just backing up, trying to keep from getting hit. So I go, I got to get down there. So I ran down there, but this other local guy was pulling this guy off. And then I pulled Mike off, and as he was getting pulled off, the guy threw a kick. Bam! Hit him right there when he was like, oh, and then he fell to the ground. And he was bleeding on the ground, and uh, I, all the boys came out. And I went, oh, no. And then one of them jumped him. And I, I jumped him, and I got on his back because I tried to, you know, because he's already hurt. I, yeah. I don't care if I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get this. I'm going to help him. Right. And luckily... Because I was doing the right thing, I think, this other local guy, right when I was on the ground, this guy had me, after I jumped him, he had me on the ground. And I was just like, I was seeing this fist coming into my face. And the guy hooked his arm, oh, the wow. local guy, from hitting me. And they started fighting. I crawled away. Okay. And I got out of it. But, I mean, it was, it was because of that. And then, you know, because his parents had a lot of money, he went back to San Francisco. And what he did is he went to the hospital here. And back then... You know, how good were the doctors? And so they sewed his tongue up, not good. So every time he ate, he bit his tongue. Oh, so he went back home, and his parents said, we're suing. 
Yeah. Well, it just so happened the guy's car that he hid owned owned a lot. So they said, look, and then I had strong arms coming after me. Yeah. And saying, okay, look, you tell him to back off or we're going to break every bone in your body. Right. So I said, well, it's time for, I'm going to have to leave, you know. This is like, I've only been here maybe three, three, four years. So I was like, I'll have to leave, you know. But he came back and just said, no, I'm going to pull, because I know you want to live here. I know you love this place. And I'm going I'm to drop the lawsuit. Mark was able to come up with money to buy Mike out of his share of the property. And the Princeville Corporation had really started to thrive and realized that using their employees as customers loaded them with cash up front years ago, but that 40% discount started to look pretty short-sighted once their actual hotel guests wanted those exact lots and they had a lot more money to spend. But then when Princeville started taking off about 78, 79, they tried to take it back from the employees by making them sign a contract. If you lost your job, you lost, you could lose your lot, which was illegal. Yeah. You know, I talked to a lawyer. He goes, don't even sign that. That's right. bullshit. Mark married a local girl and with her, three stepkids. So he needed a house, but all his money was tied up in that land. In the eight years that he owned it, the lot had grown in value to $82,000. He sold it and used that profit to buy property in Kilauea and build a big house for his new family. Kilauea is a great town for raising a family. It's close to everything, but it's not on the beach. So after spending the 80s and the 90s there, after the kids moved out, Mark was ready to get back to the beach. To the water. So, uh, you know, we decided to try to find a place in Honolulu and couldn't. It was just like, you know, not much rentals available. So she found this house. And since I windsurf, we all, this is the best kiting and windsurfing point right here, Camp Nowie. Everybody comes here because they can get right down to tunnels and sail tunnels like within five minutes. So I was thinking, ooh, maybe this is good for windsurfing, you know, and surfing tunnels. So I said, yeah, you know, we rented it for 950. And then the people the, that owned all the property, the, uh, the mom died, the grandma, Ruby Joe, she used to own the bounty house. In fact, that's another whole story because her husband was the first one to come, for, cinema photographer to come and uh, film Bally High, the movie of Kauai back in the 60s. So, <clears throat> so he got property a lot cheaper than I did, right? He, he got property for like probably these lots for $20,000 all, all along on the, in Honolulu and in the beach here. So anyway, we, uh, I bought, ended up buying this and CP, I sold the house for like 600000 in. in Kilauea and I got this I had to CPR because they wanted all three houses to sell at once and that, they wanted 2.1 million and I said oh shoot not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to do that so I ended up like well if I CPR'd it subdivided it and sold those two for 1.2 I could get this for six and that's what I did I pulled it off it's amazing and that's where we recorded this chat in Hyena 35 minutes west of Kilauea on the remote fringe of the north, just before the road dead ends on that famed Nepali coast. Our recording was delayed due to intense rain, which you could probably hear in the background um, in portions of our interview up until now. Thankfully, that led up and we were able to proceed. And you heard Mark speak about how he landed in Kauai in 1970, but I was curious about how he was able to make that dream of living here a reality. I remember when we were back at Coast Catamaran with the Terry Martin, one of the best shapers Hobie ever had. And we went to Terry because we had a connection to Hobie. So I went in there, I said, look, I want a one board. 
So I can afford for Kauai, from two to eight feet on lay. And he goes, okay, I'll make you a board. So he made two boards for Pierre and I, and they're like seven, two single fin diamond tails. And that was the board. And I surfed the board, tunnels, Hanalei, Bobos, cannons, all the spots. And uh, probably the most, the, the real imprint story about famous surfers was when I was at Cannons. I, I pulled up at Cannons, and there's standing on the cliff was Joey Cabell, Jimmy Lucas, and David Goodell. Well, David Goodell lived right there at Cannons, and I didn't know any of them, but I, they were just so, so humble and nice. They were just going, and Joey's looking at it, he's going, I think we should go out. And I was just like, and I was with them, I go, I guess we're going out. So I went out with them, paddled out. I remember getting my first wave at the bowl at Cannons, and I, it could, I was couldn't believe how steep the takeoff was. I can't believe you're riding it on those boards. Well, the single fin, no leashes, right? Crazy. So I just I remember free falling, and making the drop, and kicking out, and looking back, and looking at this third reef set because it was coming up, and nobody, nobody knew it was going to get that big, and so Joey, Jimmy, and Kavika were all out there, and they're, and they're bailing their boards because it was third reef. It was so far out the set broke, and I remember watching Jimmy jump up on his board and dive. And I just said, why would he do that? Because he's trying to get deeper. And so the boards went everywhere, you know? And so I came in and this guy, Tommy Hashimoto, which was a local down here fisherman. And this family is generations been here in Hyena. He's really a prominent uh, Hawaiian family that, you know, has been here for many years. And he was always looking for fish up by the tree there by cannons. So he knew where every board was. So he was telling Joey, your board's over there. And, uh, you know, Jimmy, your board's down there. And so, <laughs> but I'll never forget that story because yeah. it was these surfers were really good surfers. They're the top surfers of, you know, in the world at that time. Jimmy, you know, grew up on a wall. Jimmy Lucas is famous for, you know, he, in 1973, see, Kauai wasn't even on the map. In 1973, they knew that Jimmy was here and they were doing contests invite only. So they invited him to the Smirnoff in 1973 at sunset. And he went out there and got second place. And like so, and you know, they, he just came out of nowhere but and just got second. But I knew his talent was that good that he could beat the field. You know, but the only guy he didn't beat was Jeff Hackman. But Jack Hackman owned sunset at the time, you know, in those 70s. So um, uh, Jimmy, then he got back, he, then he was re uh, got back in 1974. He got invited to the Smirnoff. The one that was at Waimea, the most classic big wave, 30 feet. And I remember watching him in 1973. I was on top of the roofs at the Hanley Bay Resort because my friend says, I'm going to make you a carpenter. And I go, really? I don't know. Okay, I'll try. So he had me up three stories on this roof, and it's perfect view of Hanley Bay. And he said, look, you take the skip sheeting, and you put it down, and you put the right down by the fascia. You put that one first. And I go, why? And he goes, because if you're sliding off, you got something to grab. And I was like, oh, boy. He goes, one thing I want to tell you, Mark, don't slip on the cords, because it's always rainy and slippery up there. So I remember one day I was watching it. It was Tommy Chamberlain, who they called him Tommy Tunnels, and Jimmy Lucas were just taking turns on this 10 to 12-foot day, and they were just... I just couldn't take my eyes off. I'm like, oh God, the best surfers in the, on Kauai are just taking this place down. And I was just watching it, and, and my friend Mick Callahan is yelling, hey, Mark, stop looking at the surf. Get to work. Right. And I'm just like, okay, 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 sorry. He goes, we'll surf after. I went, all right. And then I remember I tried to surf after, and I had full cramps. And I'm, I was cramping up, and it was 10-foot on land. I'm like, oh, I'm going to drown out here with cramps. And I go, God, this... Anyway, I ended up, they fired me off the roof because... <laughs> 
because I did slip once and I slid down. And he just goes, "You're too stoned. Get off the roof." And did I'm you just, go off? Fall we off used the to roof smoke. You we used to smoke before we went up there. Yeah. You know, and no, I, ca- I caught myself right at the end. My Good. fingernails were going like this, scratching the roof as I was no sliding way. down. And he goes, "You're fired." I went, "Thank you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> back to the restaurant. Back to working at nights at the restaurant. So. Yeah, that was a, those were some um, well rat, radical days. Um, a lot of the themes or the theme through a lot of these conversations I've been having with people here is about how much Kauai has changed. And yes. obviously in the amount of time you've been here, but even just in the last five years, yes. it seems to be a real flashpoint. Yeah. Um, back to that story of your buddy getting beaten up and almost biting his tongue off. Was there a l- order? To the chaos, like no, was it the Wild West, and that you were just liable to get punched out or whatever at any given moment, or was there kind of an order? There was no order. What it what it was, there was four police for the whole island of Kauai. Okay, one for each side, but the police station was in Lehui, so the guys out here, they could do whatever they want, and they owned it, and they knew it, and everybody else knew it too. So it was just like, and and if there was trouble, and there was, of course, you know. And they would they would come out, and by the time they got here, and they're all related. Hey, bro, I haven't seen you in a long time. How's your auntie? How's your uncle? Oh, I haven't seen. How? What's going on here? You okay? Everything okay? Oh yeah, it's it's oh we took care of it, no problem. So there was no order. It was all, it was definitely wild west out here, and so that's why a lot of people were a lot of surfers were coming from California that wanted to be here too. Yeah, but they didn't want to deal with that. Right. They didn't want to deal with that, the localism. They also didn't want to deal with can't find a job yep. and can't find a place to live. Uh, so but it was worth it for you to deal with it. Oh, it will be. I, did, I stayed clean pretty good. I mean, I knew that I had, you know, I'm not a fighter anyway. So I'll just humble it will work. Humility will work. So I, yeah. I, I was humble. As I said, look, I mean, when I got a Hawaiian girlfriend, they said, oh, you know, one guy came up to me and goes, hey, bro, you'd like be Hawaiian, huh? You just wish you was Hawaiian, eh? And I go, I don't wish I was Hawaiian, but I respect the Hawaiian culture. I love the Hawaiian culture, and that's why I want to live here. So he didn't know what to say about that, but you know what? What can he say? Yeah. You know, and so it's like it, it's so different now because the problem, the difference is they married local. I mean, Hawaii girls. Most of these Hawaiians that were causing a lot of problems. So they ended up, you know. Marion, how are they going to be prejudiced if your wife's Howley and yeah. your kids Hapa Howley? Right. So they're not going to be that anymore. They just kind of grew over it, grew out of it. Yeah. You know, it's just like, yeah, I can see why they were that way. Of course. Because they wanted to protect their Aina. This is something, like, they didn't surf to live to surf and surf to live like we did. We, they wanted to work, pull taro, feed the pigs, whatever they do, fish, holy holo. And then when they're done, they'll go surf. And when they go surf now in 1969-70, it's plenty Howleys out there taking the lineup and they're good. Right. And you know, and some of the Howleys will fight. Sure. You know? So it's like, you know, there was just like, yeah, let's go to the beach. So let's go to the beach and we'll finish this off. But you know, the thing was, you know, after a while they didn't even want to do that anymore. They were like, they stopped surfing. They go, let the Howleys have it then. But every once in a while, I would see them at like Waikoko's or something all by themselves. About six of them out there surfing and having a great time. Yeah. Because they, surfing's in their blood naturally in Hawaiians. They're just so naturally gifted with surfing and singing and stuff like that. That it's just, you know, it's just easy for them. They could lay off, mm-hmm. not surf for months, go out and be just as good. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. But guys like Jimmy Lucas, he was a little different. He was like, he had a job, you know, and he was, he had a um, beautiful wife and kids and, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't get threatened as much, of course, because, you know, he was born and raised in Hawaii and part Hawaiian, so, but he wasn't a troublemaker. How were you introduced to board building? Uh, Board building, well, back in 1968, um, I paddled out at Salt Creek on a con wing nose one day and um, David Nueva was he was just riding these new short boards right and and he came down to the beach he would come on with his Porsche that he had won from a contest and he had like three short boards and I didn't I didn't know anything about what he was what kind of boards there were or anything but he paddled out and, and he saw me on that longboard and he goes get off that dinosaur and I looked at him and I went, oh my God, that's my hero, nose riding hero. He's telling me to get off. So I said, maybe it is time. So I, I saw Corky Carroll back then riding a twin fin. And I was like, God, I should. So I took a board and stripped it. Because everybody back then was doing that. Because, you know, longboards were completely out. All this, this new era was moving in of the shortboard era. And, and it was all wide open. So I took a, I said, well, I want to make something like Corky's got. So I took a stripped a longboard and I made a 5'8 twin fan. And I tried to make it red, but it turned pink, and I got a lot of shit for that, let me tell you. But so I, I was surfing it one day, and this guy Steve Truer was a photographer and a really good surfer. He went and said, Mark, I hate to tell you this, but you used to be a smooth surfer, but you're jerky now. And I went, well, sorry, I'm just trying to ride this twin fin, you know. And that was so thick, I could actually knee paddle it. I was only like about 140 pounds. Amazing. Yeah, it was 5'8". So then that was my first board, and then one time in Newport Beach, um, I was over Corner de Mar, Del Mar. I had that board, and someone said, hey, who made that? And I go, I did. And he goes, well, could you make me a couple boards? And I went, sure. And my friend next to me, and I go, I'm a shaper. He's the glasser. And he goes, I am? I go, you're the glasser. So we did we did uh, two two or three boards in the garage in 68. That's why I put on the shirt, established in 1968, but I really wasn't established. I was just the first time I cracked the, you know, the trying to be a shaper code. But then um, I started, I think what really opened my mind to shaping was Bunker Spreckles. I don't know if you've heard of them. Of course. Yeah, so Bunker lived, I lived like 100 yards from Bunker's house. Here? Here. And Bunker was making these spaceships. And he had two shaping rooms, a couple glassing rooms, really hot surfers living with him. And uh, Vinnie Bryan, who was, bless his soul, he passed away, but he was a beautiful surfer, super fast. Anyway, he, um, they were making boards over there, and I said, and I was living with John Riddle uh, from, they called him New Break Kid, from, and he was living with me, and I said, hey, you know Bunker, can, can you get me in the shop, make a board for myself, I want to make a board for tunnels, and he goes, I don't know, I, I'll try, you know, he didn't want to do it, so I asked Vinny, I said, Vinny, can you ask Bunker, and he goes, sure, and he said, yeah, you can do it, come on in, so I went over there, and I didn't really, wasn't sure what I was going to make, all I knew was going to make a short board for tunnels and I was looking at all their edge boards and I was going well that's too extreme you know it's hard edges all the way around super you could cut yourself almost wow. and like super flat so they were like thick tails and they would go down like this and taper and but they would just do this because of the thick tails it just go you know and get in without even a paddle right and just jump to their feet and so I did something like that I did kind of an edge board but it was six eight I think and uh I did I finished it, and Todd and Rick Value, who was living with those guys, and really good surfers at tunnels, and there's only maybe like five to eight guys surf tunnels, and we were the guys mostly because we lived down here. 
go to Hanalei every now and then, but it's, it was kind of crowded. Yeah. And there's a lot of good surfers already coming from all over, Hanalei, Kapa, but they knew Hanalei was the spot, and it was good from 2 to 20, so they're going to be on that spot, you know. So it took a long time, like I said, to get to get a wave out there. But but uh, so Vinny looked at the board and he goes, "That's that's you did. It's really nice." So I went, "Oh, thanks, Vinny. I got a compliment." You know. So I was like, "Wow." Then it, then later on, Diff and Differ uh, lived here, and Larry Strada, a couple of be- really good shapers too. So I mean, why should I try to keep shaping my own boards when I can get boards from the best shapers here? And so I kind of stopped. But I remember I stripped a board for this local guy. He was telling me, uh, hey, bro, I'd like you to make me one board. And I said, okay. And then he goes, I go, yeah, you really want me to? Yeah, yeah. So he brings me a board and he goes, here, strip it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I had to strip it. And by the time I stripped it, it wasn't thick enough for him. But it looked good because it was actually pre-shaped, right? Great. I mean, it was in, so but it was in the shaping room and Diffender for saw it. And he goes, who shaped this? He goes, Mark did. And he goes, well, tell him to keep doing it. And I, that was kind of stayed in my mind right then, too. But for years and years, I didn't, you know, and I went to uh, Hamilton, uh, Terry Chun. But in the 90s, see, I was surfing a lot of longboard contests on Oahu and, and um, called the Hawaiian Longboard Surfing Association. And it was an inter-island pro-am, sur- you know, longboard thing prep to uh, perpetuate the longboard. So, you know, and it came back, you know, longboarding came back in the um, early 80s. And I remember um, Riddle would bring a Skip Fry over once, you know, and he said, hey, I'll sell you this board. And I rode this, I had a 9.3 Skip Fry, and I, I would just only surf it when it was this big. And I had so much fun, though, because nobody would go out when it was small. So it was just me, Ralph Young, Billy Hamilton, maybe three or four of us, like, riding longboards when it was that small. And then they started this Pine Trees Longboard Classic about 78, 79, or maybe it was earlier than that, 77, and nobody had longboards. So I had to. I remember borrowing uh, Billy Hermstead's ten-foot-old classic nose rider, and going out and remembering how what it was like to walk, you know, walk up and down the board. And I was like, God, this is fun. And I kind of started getting into it a little bit, but it still was my main thing with shortboarding, good waves. And uh, so I never really did much of it that much, just here and there. But then in eight, um, I got into the Longboard Hawaiian Longboard Surfing Association and started like surfing all around the islands. And so there's guys like Lance Walcano, and their kids, you know, Dino Miranda, they're 20 years younger than me, and, you know, Bonga Perkins, and all these guys, and I'm watching them surf, and I'm going, geez, man, these guys are surfing longboards like shortboards. And, and um, that's how it was kind of judged. It was more like, you know, high performance, not really nose riding. And so I, t- I looked at a lot of boards, and I was always trying to get a better board back then. And I would go to Billy a lot, and, and, um, and Billy at one point, he just said, hey, I don't need my team. I was kind of on his team. So he goes, I'm, not, I'm eliminating my team. I don't need a team. I said, whatever. So I, I remember going over to Gary McNabb. I don't know if you heard of him. Mm-hmm. Yet. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the guy that inspired me probably the most to shape. Wow. Because I went, he came here and visited, and he had a board. And he goes, take my board out. So I surfed it, and I noticed Martel Rocker was creating this thing, very looser feeling. I was like, wow, can you make me a couple boards? And can I get a deal? Of course, you know, now I pay for that, you know, for trying to get a deal from yeah. all the shape. Oh, I'll ride your boards. Right. You know, so uh, now people tell me that and they go, well, you did that too. So, but anyway, um, Gary's boards, he started sending me boards and then he sent me epoxy ones and stuff. And I remember I took, uh, I really loved them and I started surfing better on those boards. And then I, I remember taking one to Terry Chan. I said, Terry, 
No, I went back to, okay, they had this one magic board that I called magic. I took it back, to, I went back to see Gary because I was back there anyway. And he was, he was the guy designing Future Fence. He's the guy that designed Future Fence. He sold the company right when he designed it. And he was, he was doing that at that time. And I said, hey, what about that board you made me? That It was SVF epoxy. And I go, what's with that rocker, man? That thing is the best. He goes, that was a mistake. And I go, what do you mean? Because I always tried to figure out why boards were good because I did ding repair through all those years too. So I was always had hands on. So I said, what's going on with that board? And he goes, Mark, that was a mistake. I couldn't get the tail rocker out of it. it. Had too much and I tried to cut it. But what I found out, because the tail rocker was more forward, and I found out I'm a front foot surfer because I'm left-handed and, and I should be a goofy foot, but I'm a regular foot. So my, I'm, you know, my, I'm more front-footed. So I was liking the rocker farther up and between my feet. So it was really making that board super carvy and easy to surf. It's more controllable. Yeah, totally. And it wasn't so much like a big board out there because yeah. I'm more forward on the board. Interesting. Yeah, so and I could do this, you know, rail to rail, really easy, especially if they're light. So I started really going, wow, this is what this is me. This is what I need. And then so um, Terry Chun copied one for me, one of Gary's. And I took it to um, Akaha and I ended up surfing in the Pro-Am and I did pretty good on it. And I was just like, I'll never forget too, I was going out in the heat and Bongo was in the heat. He won it, of course. And so, but um, Randy Rarick was in the heat and a, another guy, four of us. And he comes up to me and he sees it, it had a square nose. You know, Terry made me, and he goes, how do you like that board? And I go, oh, I love this board. And he goes, oh, you know, because I had it had beveled rails and everything, you know, and I was just like into that board. And so I knew, you know, when you're confident in a board like that, you're going to do good, mm -hmm. usually. You know, so I did good. And I ended up like second to the, in the heat and advanced. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so then, you know, I did all the contests. And, and then at one point, we moved here. And I had ding repair in my garage over there, and I said, I can't, I can't do ding repair in the yard. It rains all the time. I can't put up a little tent, and it didn't really work that good. So I said, look, uh, I'm going to build a, a ding repair room, which is that thing over there. But it was over here, right here. So we built it, and as, as my friends were building it, it was costing me like four grand. I was like, geez, I just wanted to, you know, but they go, I go, might as well, I might as well make it a, a shaping bay and because it's drywall and everything and i said just make it a shaping bay and so and what i'll do if i can't shape or i don't really take off on shaping um i'll just let guest shapers come over here and use it and maybe i'll learn from them you know and i did do that i had like jeff johnston from town of country i had uh hoey don johnston who lives here now and um I had like other shapers come in and use it too. But I was also getting boards from a, a different guys. And I remember making my first long board for myself. The two shapers came over to look at it. John Riddle and David Implum. They, cause I was writing David Implum's boards, right? So Imua fiberglass. So I go, he looks at the board and goes, Oh my God! We got another shaper. <laughs> Some more competition, you know. Which so is a compliment. Yeah, it was. And and so I just what I did the first uh, ten boards, the first ten boards that I shaped, I gave them the free shapes and just made everybody just pay the cost of the materials for blank and fiber, you know, and for the glass job. And and then it took off. And I remember when I surfed in the Pine Trees Longbird Cla uh, Classic, and I did pretty good on my own board. And some people were looking at it and they said, Hey, you know, and I was something new something different you know so they wanted to try something different and 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 now that's why I look at um, shapers 
all the shapers there's a lot of good ones here on Kauai but I, I look at it, we're all artists, right? We're just doing our thing. And if people like our boards, then we're good. No one is really better than anybody else. There's probably better craftsmen out there for sure. You know, like carpentry, there's always better craftsmen. Mm -hmm. You know, you can bid a job for a carpentry job and they're not going to say, are you the best craftsman? Right. Well, maybe for interior work, but I don't, you know, for, for, for shaping, it's, it's just a self-expression thing. And you just like surfing, you know, you, if you, if the guy likes your board, it's good. Yeah. Right. I mean, oh. so it's it doesn't matter. Yeah. If it's the you know what I like I about know. now too is no it's not as trendy. I mean, it's in a way it is kind of trendy in, in in some aspects, but as far as like, there's not just one certain board. No. That everybody wants you got to make that's good. You know, and the thing is, the magic board is different for every person too. Exactly. Right. So you know. What you got to do as a shaper is like when someone says it's a magic board, you go, oh, no, because they're going to ask you to make it over again. Yeah. And that's going to be really hard. It's impossible. Even with computers. Yeah. Because computers, because you've got so much more to it. And there's too many um, variables in terms of the blank, in terms of the stringer, in terms of the lamination. Like it's impossible to control all the variables. So you're never going to be able to replicate yeah. what you're trying to replicate. 100% replication. Yeah. It's better just to... Um, play jazz and try to land on it you know exactly but it's like throwing darts if you get the bullseye good but you're not gonna always hit that bullseye no. yeah um so where were you getting materials i mean uh, we're out here in the middle of nowhere it seems yeah. pretty far removed from all the sources well um well clark well u.s um u.s foam which is clark you know we were getting clark blanks from they shipped over from oahu okay. right and they'd go to young brothers and go to young brothers pick them up so that was always the case. But then when Clark went out of business, it was pretty much uh, a sad situation because there weren't any blanks. And like Steve had some because Steve, you know, had the connection of, of U.S. Foam. Who was Steve? Uh, Steve Rex. So he would like, we would have to call him up and say, Steve, please, please, how much? Give me a blank. Come on. You know, and so, and, you know, he, he tried to divide the blanks up equally amongst all the shapers. He tried to be as fair as he could. That's all he could do, you know. And there just wasn't enough blanks. So a lot of crappy blanks were coming over here and getting here. And, you know, the guys go, oh, this guy's bringing a shipment of blanks of this certain kind. I'm not going to mention names. And then all of a sudden you do, okay, I'm, I, I'll grab some. And then you start shaping them and go, God, these things are not very good. You Coming know? from South America. Yeah, and just the foam itself was yeah. caving in. Right. You know what I mean? So from the heat over here or whatever, it just wasn't a good formula of foam. One thing that I've heard a lot of board builders talking about on Kauai is um, it's a hard time getting good lamination. Yeah. Is that unique to is it because of the environment is it because of there's a lack of craftsmen coming up that care about it like what what's the problem it's just a lack of craftsmen okay there's no competition so the only legal shop right now on the whole island of Kauai is is uh imua fiberglass and he's right in the middle of lahui there in the industrial center and that used to be max Madaris. max Madaris was he came from oahu he's a excellent surfer still to this day he's probably one of the best surfers at his age you know uh that i that i can even think of what age you know i would say he's 10 years younger than me i say he's probably 60 now okay you're 61 maybe something like that but he still rips on a shortboard i mean he is impressive and uh there's there's some other guys too i mean terry chan is uh, unbelievable too yeah. i mean the guy could and you know titus and of course you know those guys those really good surfers they're going to hang on to it, you know, their abilities pretty longer than yeah. most. In big waves, too. Yeah, in big it's waves. It's gnarly. Well, t you know, Terry, t 
I remember when I first came here, he was just unbelievable. He was he's like six, seven years younger than me, and he, you know, when he came over here with Moki Warren and Paul Lindo, and and um, uh, Joey Carroll, they were living camping, you know, in the bushes. And like I go, who are these kids? They're just so good. But they were from Oahu. They grew up on Oahu, so they've already been in Hawaiian juice before. Mm -hmm. But Terry, I remember we walking the reef at tunnels trying to get my board before leashes, and he'd be going in and out of the barrel, and I'd just go, God, how come he's that good? How come I can't do that? You know, it's like yeah. I could get barreled now and then, but not like as good as he could. Yeah. And he's always been a, an excellent surfer. He, he's, his precision and his, his, his so, um, it's so hard to explain how he could just be in the right spot all the time. Yeah. And just pick the right waves. Yeah, I'll never forget this one time though. I was when I was surfing it big with my friend Jeff Walba. At one point, Brewer called him one of the best big wave riders of 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 the island of Kauai, and and that was in early '70s. And Brewer was making his guns, and he was and so he got me inspired to ride bigger waves, and I got out there a lot with him. But I remember one time we were walking out back door, and we saw this 10, 12 foot set, and, and Terry was on it, and he dropped down and he just got exploded. He never and he didn't. I go, oh, he got work, you know. You start hyperventilating, thinking about that, you know, butterflies in your stomach, and you're just like, okay, I'm going out there, and you know, there's the best surfer out there. He just got his butt kicked, and so I go out there, and and, and I go, Terry, and, and he just his eyes are all glassy. He goes, uh, you guys go. I don't want it. I don't want it. And I just went, what, you know? And so then, you know, ten minutes later, he's right in the best spot going again. No way. It didn't take long. Yeah. <laughs> for him to just, you know, amazing. Yeah. Well. um a lot of those guys you named uh -huh. have, uh, like, they reside here and they don't, you know, the, the, they're not really as public of figures. They're just kind of quiet. People have heard of their names, but you never really saw a ton of them in the magazines. They kept a pretty low profile, and it's kept a low profile for the island in a lot of these spots that you're talking about. Yeah. Obviously, the Irons Brothers and that generation kind of changed everything yes. and went full high profile. Yeah. Uh, how did that change things for you in terms of... The island getting crowded in terms of your business, in terms of all of it. Well, we, we knew, you know, they, they were telling me at one point in the early 70s, in five years, there's going to be 5,000 people living at Princeville. And at that point, you're like, no way. But, it you know, it never really did happen at that early because Hurricane Eva, Hurricane Niki, you know, all these things like, you know, slowed the island, pr you know, progress down. Right. And the amount of people coming. But when Andy guys um, started going pro tour, it did change the island. It exposed it a little more. And then everybody was like, oh, I want, you know, they grew up at pine trees. Well, you know, th there's not that many good surf spots. I was a little bummed about it. But in a way, I wanted to see them have a great surfing future. That was our dream anyway. When we came here to see surfing get to that point where you could make a, a great future out of it. Right. But, you know, so, but there's pine trees. When the trades wind blow, it's pine trees, Hanalei, period, tunnels, finicky. And then all these other spots like middles, cannons, bobos have to be glassy variables. And then Kaliwai only breaks on a big north. You know, so there wasn't that much surf really. Yeah. So you're thinking, wow, we're going to expose this island now and then what's going to happen? But it's still, it's amazing after, you know, I can't believe it's 2020. I'm out at Rock Quarry with two of my friends and we're all in our 70s. I'm just like, are you kidding me? Or late 60s, something, you know? I go, this, it's, you can still, you know, fine surf with not that crowded you don't need to go to the most crowded spot and and uh, it did change the island and but the biggest change i think was when the 
you know, the movies came. I, I, I think that, you know, and they're doing a lot of films here. And then uh, I remember when they did a golf tournament at, at Princeville, um, the Kemper Open for the women's, and Lee Trevino, he's on the mic and he goes, this is the best kept secret I've ever seen. He sees it right on TV and national t television. I'm like, oh no, thanks Trevino. Right. You know what I mean? But it did, I think once the the wealthier people came, that's where the big change happened. Because they now, because they want, they want it all. You know, they, they want to live in paradise, but they want things the way they want it, you know, the culture wise. So it's just not, it's Hawaiians are revolting you know, you know, they've been doing that for, you know, since the overthrow. But I'm just, you know, I feel bad for the Hawaiian. My wife's a Hawaiian activist. And, and I don't get involved that much in that because I'm not Hawaiian. But I understand where she's coming from. You know, the pride, you know, in, in the indigenous people. And so when these people are, are building houses on the point here with all this money, the reason why they're buying this property is because they're telling them you can do a vacation rental, which was illegal in the first place. And too bad that the county didn't jump on this before they did. Because now you got all this residential areas with vacation rentals, and that's the only reason they bought the property because they can get 10,000 a week. Yeah. You know, so. It more than pays the mortgage. Yeah, more than pays the mortgage, and they can come and visit when they want. Yeah. But th they, yeah. Have an, they, they have an attitude, and it's not the same as when I got here. Right. Their, our attitude was be humble, respect the Hawaiian culture. Over here, it's not like move over. Right. I'm here. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's kind of sad. What, um, I would imagine it affects your property taxes too, right? It it does, but then I got I, I got lucky on this because um, it was really high when I first got this piece, oh, okay. and then uh, with the exemptions and stuff, you know, being owner occupant, and then you know here the exemptions are a lot better, so I can deal with it. But the the worst part over here is um, is the tidal wave insurance. Oh, really? Because yeah, it's it's inevitable that someday there will be a tidal wave. There was before. So, you know, uh, it's just sad that, you know, it's like 10000 a year for the beachfront. I think it's even more than that. I pay like 5000 a year here, you know, for this back house, one, one house back from the beach. And so that's the hardest part, you know, because they're only going to give you, if there is a tidal wave, they're only going to give you like 250000 you know. And so what Crazy. that can, and then you got to go with the new codes yeah. up off the ground. Right. You know, I'm grandfathered here. Right, yeah, right. this thing was built in 73. Okay. Yeah. What are um, the issues that your wife is most concerned about as a Hawaiian? You said she's an activist. Uh, just desecrating the aina. She's her biggest thing. The land. The land, yeah. There's a lot of bones. A lot of Hawaiians, they, they're buried, you know, they didn't have graveyards, you know. they Like in Tahiti, they bury their, their family in the backyard, you know. So it's like a lot of uh, bones have been, they find bones when they're like, with this new construction, this tidal wave insurance construction, they have to have like interlocking foundations. And so they have to go down like four or five feet and then the interlock concrete foundations to come off the ground to go up higher. So when the tidal wave does come and they have breakaway walls on their first story so the water can go through. But anyway, I remember Charo came up to me as a waiter and she goes, well, Mark, when's the last time there's a tidal wave? What do you think? And she, she's trying to get insurance because they made a new law that if you'd interlock this... But now they're digging, you know, they're digging deep to do that. And so they're digging up bones all the time. Hmm. So, you know, you have uh, the archaeologists have to come out and um, the burial burial council has to come out and okay it. And then most of the time they'll move the bones off onto the side. And 
the biggest controversy probably was on the point over here. There was 28 graves. This guy dug up 28 graves standing straight up and down. I don't know how that was done or why yeah. it was done, but all the Hawaiians got in involved. Yeah. And my wife is down there and with Ka'ulani and uh, Hawaiians from the Big Island and stuff. And a lot of the activists came to stop the, stop the uh, building there. And they said, you're desecrating this area. It's, you know. right. So they already had a permit. So this guy's a big developer. He's got a lot of money. And he goes, hey, he st we st they stopped the construction for a month, delayed it, right? These guys were, were working on it, had to go home because all these Hawaiians were saying leave. So um, eventually the guy just tried to summon everybody for a trespassing. And so in they, they ended up like Terry Tico lives right here in front. She's a lawyer and she's super nice and she, she wins surf surfs and that kind of thing. So she, she understands where the Hawaiians coming from. She just told the guy, hey, if you want to build here, you better drop that lawsuit. And so, you know, at one point I was just saying, Louise, we're going to lose our house because he's suing you. I don't, you know, how, how about the other activists? What do they have? We got something here. Yeah. You want to lose it? You know, so she had to pull back, but she, she just, she has a lot of pride. So she's, well, it's understandable, um, and there's been so much injustice along the way from the initial annexing of the land and the, right. uh, the islands in the first place. You know, yeah. like there's so much resentment, and I think also um, miscommunications along the ways. And, yeah. But do you guys feel optimistic about um, local politicians being able to solve some of these problems and advocate for the local Hawaiians? Yeah, I think th I think there's a possibility of that, but you know, it, it's really hard for the politicians to make everybody happy, right? I know. So, so it's just, that's a really a good balancing act there, and you know, a lot of times, like I, I think you know, our mayor Derek Kalakami is a good mayor. I think he's you know, not only does he surf, so that's a good thing, but you know that he he's more conscientious of the Hawaiians. I think, and you know, so I think there's a possibility that you know there can be some things that will you know make the hawaiians a little more at ease about you know the overthrow of what's going on on Kauai is basically the whole the whole state matter of fact but yeah so it's 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 a hard one for them i think as a politician because you know it's easier for them to be limelighters or you know to just try to make the right people happy the people that are going to help them you know it's an impossible task it seems i've yeah. talked to a couple of people on yeah. the podcast this past week yeah politicians and stuff and um i everybody's heart seems like it's in the right place yeah but it's impossible to please everybody and there's an inevitable um desire to build mm -hmm. and to accommodate tourism and that sort of thing and but it displaces obviously housing just becomes an issue like it's so expensive the prices just get so high that the locals and you know the hawaiians that have lived here forever can't afford yeah. to stay and it's, yeah, i don't know it's, how you solve that yeah that that's that's probably what they're always thinking about too and it's you know, it's just a tough situation that you know the the amount of people that are coming here to make the big difference you totally. know and the type of people too so you know it's i think they should just put a moratorium on the an amount of property that's being sold. It might you know? be the solution. Yeah, and they got to find but more property for the Hawaiians to live. Just yeah, give them, give them property to, to live and 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 do their own farming, and and let them. You know, I know they can't live off the ocean like they used to, but when that flood happened here, this ocean came back or out here. I mean, the fish were more. You know, because 
my uh, son-in-law, he works for the DLNR, and, and uh, he he is saying that he monitors the fish and the reefs so okay. out here, and he said the reef was getting healthier, the fish were coming more abundant. Good. So just because of the lack of amount of tourists coming out here, and you know they blame it on bad sunscreen too. But I mean, but you know it's just like it it definitely revitalized the area by, by less people here. So I think they just got to stop selling more you know stop building hotels you know got enough is enough you know yeah. but that's hard to you know tell developers to do but even uh, i mean even the roads are full of potholes yeah you know, know. there's like real basic stuff i know and they well that's just priorities in our income tax money you know what right. where is it going right exactly and so yeah but yeah the biggest problem is is housing yeah and you know jobs are not the problem anymore because Good. there's a lot of businesses that want employees and they're, they're help wanted everywhere but where are they going to live Right. So it's just like everywhere it's happened, you know, in the mainland, it's happened on Oahu. You just, you got to have areas for the common people to live. That's all there is to it. So they can afford rent, you know, at some decent amount. Mm -hmm. And then they can, they can live here too, because there has to be a balance in the kind of people that are here. Yeah. The Hawaiians, um, they're just putting up with it, you know, and they usually had property, they already had property to begin with, you know, so they're not dealing with that but what they're dealing with is is taxes so exactly. high that they get forced off their property exactly and they got to have the that's when the tax the county council comes up with the tax exemptions good to let them you know good yeah um how old are you i'm 71 how i'm so amazed at people in their 60s and 70s um in this area specifically that are still charging surfing all the time and charging how do yeah. you do it What's your I, diet? I What's just, your exercise? I Give just me. thank God, you know. <laughs> well, I had some problems. When I was 68. I had some, help, you know, health problems. And it was like, it, it was not easy to pinpoint. I'm not going to go into it because it's just too long. But I got healthy again. And um, Do you think it was related to diet? or I, I don't know. I You know, it could be related to diet, but my diet wasn't that bad. Okay. I mean, I tried to have a well-balanced diet. I did eat meat once in a while, but not that much. Okay. I mean, I, you know, like steak, red meat, but I would eat like chicken and fish a lot. And um, I'd eat a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables. You know, I have like, I start off the day with like a smoothie, with a protein smoothie. Okay. And then, I you know, maybe have some, um, you know, like granola or something. And then, you know, I usually eat like... So, you know, some lunch, I'll just have like tuna sandwich or turkey sandwich or something, you know, and and then, you know, have dinner with salad. And, but, you know, of course, married to Hawaiian, I'll be, I eat too much white rice, but that's okay. A little bit of carbs. You know? Yeah. But no, I've been, a, you know, my diet's been okay. I think it's just like when you get my age, you just have to keep going. You can't stop surfing because if you stop, it's going to be too hard to get back into it. And then not only when you stop it, you also get out of shape because unless you're just like a triathlete or something, that yeah. you're really conscientious of keeping yourself in shape. But there's paddling muscles involved there, you know. And so your paddling muscles just get weaker. And so if you're, if you're going out there and, you're, and there's always competition in surfing. So if you're going out there and you're not catching waves and you used to be this good, right, and you used to be having a lot more fun, it's easy to just put it put it on the back shelf yeah and go play golf or something like that you know so do you do any cross training type exercise I, not really all i do i i just um i surf i windsurf i still windsurf but i had a knee replacement and uh bad you know i started my knee started years ago when i i taunted the lip like i like an idiot uh straightening off on a big wave at the bay and i just pointed at the lip like I can, you, ain't, you ain't gonna get me 
and I straightened off and when I did I went down on my board and bounced backwards and just tweaked my knee and then I paddled back out and I didn't know anything till I stood up on the next wave and I would just went oh my gosh and I remember <laughs> I always tell this story and that Titus was you know uh, up by the picnic table where everybody hangs over there by the black pot and you know he probably would not even remember but you know so he had like he broke his uh, femur at Waimea so he was on crutches and he was watching the you know he, he couldn't surf he was watching he was pretty bummed that he wasn't out there and I came limping up the beach and some guy goes hey Mark what's wrong with you and I go oh, I hurt my knee and he just looked at me like Shh, you ain't hurt dude you know <laughs> yeah so I just went snapping well, a femur is yeah hurt. well that's hurt you know so anyway I you know I went through the years I played volleyball too you know beach volleyball two-man volleyball and uh started really swelling up and then in the contest too on Oahu it said it would swell up a lot Finally, he went to the Ravinsky when he was the brand new here. Oh, yeah, don't tear on your meniscus. I can fix that. And I, and I didn't get it fixed right away because it wasn't the, quite that bad. Then I finally went back, and it was like half of my meniscus had to be taken out. And that was orthoscopic. And then then after a while, it was like bone on bone. So he just goes, Mark, you're a candidate. you got to get a knee replacement. It took a year to get back to surfing. Oof. And I almost thought I wasn't going to make it because I'm pretty old at that point, 69. You know, so... Uh, I remember he goes, well, you'll be able to surf in, you know, three months. And I went, really? Anyway, I remember trying to go out at, uh, we call summer break out by the hotel there. And I had one of those Costco boards, you know, and soft on the knee because it's kind of numb at first. And so I stood up and then I, I would try to cut back and just fall. You know, you know, it would hurt to stand up. I'm like, oh, man, I don't know about this. And then um, what I had to do with the physical training, you really have to, like, train the muscle memory thing, you know, because you have no balance once they put that, take that knee out, put that fake knee in or prosthetic, you t you have to retrain that leg, what it's supposed to do. You know, there was no pain. And then it t within a year, I was surfing and with strong. Wow. Back to my normal strength, you know. And like everybody's going, oh, Papa Sal made a comeback. You know, and I did. I made a comeback not only from being ill, yeah. but also from um, from my knee. Good. So, so I'm back at it, you know. But and I'm just as stoked as I've always ever been. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, it's epic. Yeah. But you, um, you mentioned off mics that you're not riding waves any bigger than six feet. Yeah. At one point, I got out there and I started going, you know, it started kind of thinking hey you know if i get caught inside by a big set i might drown and so it's like you know i go okay if that's the point where you're thinking now don't be out there because you don't want to think like that yeah you got to think like i can take the licking on the biggest wave out here and i'm going to come right back and do it again and that's what your mentality has to be and guys like brian kenley who's my age and he still charges is because he's a swimmer and he's always been a body surfer swimmer he's got some strong lungs and he's he's very confident in getting knocked even being caught inside on a big set that you'll be okay yeah i remember one day i was really big and i was almost caught and i was paddling through these waves just to get over them and this guy behind me was like a really good big wave rider i used to call him charlie galanto because he was so you know he really wanted the big stuff and he goes to me he he goes Sazen, and i go what and he goes i'm through it's over and i go what's wrong and he goes i panicked I panicked. You know, if you panic, you're hyperventilating, right? You're just going, <gasps> you can't do that in big surf. No. you got to be able to control that and just hold. You, just know that you're going to take punishment. So what? It's not going to be that long, yep. and you're going to come back up. And so, you know, now they got flotation vests to give you more confidence. And, you know, a lot of guys out there now that it's, you know, when it gets over eight feet, they're on the, they got their flotation vests out there. My son-in-law, he wants big surf, you know, and I made him a 9-8 uh, a gun, four-fin gun, 
biggest day, that day Jaws was, they had the Jaws contest. He went out the bay and he handled. Wow. But he's, he likes, he wants it. You gotta, there's a certain breed of person that likes that kind of stuff, likes to be scared. Because when you're scared, then, then you have this adrenaline rush when you do make a wave that you're going, wow, that was totally worth it. Yeah. Yeah, when you're walking up the beach, you feel like a million bucks. Right. I remember I got the wave of one of the best waves of my life out there, and it'll, it'll be a memory forever. And I ne- and I borrowed a gun. I remember I went out one day, it was solid 10 feet, and I said, you know, it's like 20-foot face in Hawaii. So I said, this my friend Robbie, bless his soul, he passed away too. And so I said, Robbie, got a gun I can borrow? He goes, here, take this one. So I took this 9-3 gun out there. I got this eight-foot wave, and it was just fit me like a glove. I was like, oh, wow. yeah, this is a good board. So the next, all of a sudden, this big set came, and I was way up the point, and I just said, I'm going. And I looked deep, and I saw this guy going. I said, he's too deep. So I just went, put the blinders on, and I just went. I remember free-falling down the face. I got in good, jumped to my feet, and just started free-falling immediately. I go, I don't like that because I want to set that rail quick and get that line because it's a long, long wave. So... I free-felled lower than I wanted to be, and when I caught, I threw the turn, and I came right up into the barrel, and it was just throwing out like 20, 30, 40 feet in front of me, and I was just in there the whole wave, just going, come on, baby, you can't fall. You just can't fall, you know, and so I, I, I came out at the bowl and just almost fainted. My, mm. my legs were just quivering, and I just fell off the board and just went, holy shit, that was incredible, you know, but it was How like, old were you? I was like probably 52 wow. something like that in 50 in my 50s wow because you know in that's when you really start nailing on when you after you've done 20 years out there no way yeah that's when you start really realizing what wave you want and what you know not just out there for you know to watch and maybe get one or two and, and then say oh i surfed it you know but you know and, and just didn't have a gun at that time because I had broke mine or something. Didn't have a board at the point, but I saw the waves and I saw how perfect it was. And I go, this is a rare day. Yeah, I got to get my butt out there. How, what's the who's the best surfer you've ever seen out there? I'd say I would get. I would have to hand that over to Terry Chun. Be, you know, and there's there's been a bunch. You know, um, of great big wave riders. You know that you know in all sizes, but Terry's really. His, you know, his precision is unbelievable, and he he has no fear, you know. He just he's always in on the right wave. And you know, Celso, you know, is Malia Manuel's uh, father. He's amazing too. Is there's it? yeah, there's a, there's a Titus, of course, Titus Kinimaka. Even though Titus doesn't surf the bay that much anymore, because he's he's a foiler more now. He loves foiling, and a lot of guys that um, were stand-up paddlers and, and they got foils and stuff, and they just kind of moved. Yeah, and you don't see them out there as much. Right. But they're doing. You know, who cares? They're having fun at what they're doing. You know. So that's what counts. As long as you're in the ocean. Yeah. I don't care if you're on a boogie board. So what? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how often do you ride other shapers' surfboards? I, I I don't ride any other 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 people's boards anymore unless um, I ha- you know unless I'm stuck without a board. You know, it's not like I won't ride them. You know, I'm not that close-minded about my shapes. I just know that what I'm making for myself is probably going to be the best thing for me. Is you know, and if someone says, "Hey, you got to try this board," just go out and try it. And like you know, like Tom Powers told me one time, you know, you got to try this little six-eight, you know, uh, Almeric uh, epoxy pop-out. And I said, "Okay, I'll." T-. And he goes, "Oh man, it's so good! You get off that long board. You're gonna love this, you know." And I got on the board, and I didn't really like it because it was too quirky, yeah. and I couldn't even duck dive it that good because it was just throwing me back over. And I was going, "God, it's floaty, 
which is good for easy to catch waves. And it felt like on those epoxy boards, like I wasn't creating the speed. It was creating the speed itself because it didn't have any flex. So it was just whew, take off and go. And then, yeah, you're going, whoa, I'm going. So it, those kind of boards are probably better for beginner surfers because you don't have to learn how to create speed or learn how to car, you know, uh, that's what, what I call a good surfer period is one that can create speed it can come from slow to fast go from slow to fast and then slow down again and go fast again you know so yeah, that's a surfer that's learned how to you know really you know uh, use the board for its best whatever yeah. it has yeah, going yeah. for it yeah so yeah um, who's buying your boards uh, you is know it all locals or is it um it's tourists that come through or and every, how do you connect with all them? everything in, in between just because you've been at it for so long they it's, know how to get a hold of you or? you know what's amazing about shaping and it's like people go up to me all the time and go oh you're famous you're famous you're a legend i go i'm not a legend i'm just a guy that's still around you know it's yeah. like i'm still around and um people like my board so thank god for that you know it's like when i started shaping i didn't think i was going to be where i'm at now there's no way i was thinking oh, i'm just going to do boards for myself and that's going to be good enough yeah. So I didn't have any long-range, you know, goals on shaping. I just, all I knew, though, because I've been through all these generations of surfboard design, that I was going to be able to make anything. And because once you learn how to shape the, the, you know, the fundamental steps, you should be able to, to shape anything. And what helped me the most was John Carper Shaping 101. Because what that did is it set me into steps. Because, you know, Randy Slay is a good shaper. He passed away also. I have a, half my half my surf buddies have already passed away which is sucks but you know he told me one time he said get in here and shape i seen you shape shape a board and i go well, uh, well here's a blank get in there and i just went in and i shaped i didn't know what i wanted i just started shaping and i did it with a shear form and a sand you know a block plane and i ended up making this board i took it down to donkey's bay it sucked i hated it and i just go this thing sucks you know i you know it wasn't that i thought oh i can't shape it's just i didn't have i didn't have a goal in mind what i wanted so first of all you got to have the kind of board in your mind that you want to make and then take those steps to do it and if you do those steps every time you make a board your boards will come out the same instead of different all the time so that's what really made me a better shaper is just because I was doing the steps that I learned. Right. And then every shaper, like, you know, Ryan Hackman rode my boards for years. And, like, and his dad, too. And, and he just tells me one day, he said, you know what? And if I couldn't talk him into riding those retro nose riders. I said, come on, ride one of these. I made one. And I go, oh, these things are really, they, they're playing really good. They trim really good. They're really good for small surf, you know. You have so much fun getting up there and hanging 10. He goes, I don't need that. Your high-performance longboard, your 50-50 model is good enough. It, it, I can ride the nose just as good on that at any board and still carve. Yeah. And I was like, whatever. So then I finally made him one and said, try it. And he ended up, he should have got first in the contest at Pine Trees. He got second. But I, I knew, I watched him and I just went, whoa, he's surfing that board so good. And he's just a talented kid. Right. And so I, you know, I, he just goes, whoa, this is what I want. And so we did a few. But then he said, to, you know, I want to, can you teach me how to make one of these? And I said, I'll try. I haven't made that many myself because it's so retro, you know, going back, back to those 60s. So and I started like figuring out myself and I taught him what I knew. Then he went over to Bossa, Bobby Allen, and he started helping him. And then he's gone to uh, a few shapers now, you know, Mark Angel and uh, who's the guy, um, the guy on the south side. I just can't think of his name right now. He's, he's also 
another shaper, uh, Matt Siebert. But anyway, he's you know he's had a lot of help, and so now he shapes. And so, and I like his you know his cons. You know, I saw him at the memorial, and I saw a board he made, and I said, this I think this is the best board you've ever shaped. And he goes, yeah, thanks. And and like he you know he's still trying to make something like this old Yater that he thought was the most magic board in the world and he had his dad convinced too that it was the best board ever and he, and uh, you know I tried to make I made one for his dad his dad actually kept it I think I told his dad I said you know Jeff because I used to make him boards all the time I said if you don't want this board because he he had a lot to do with the design he got in that shaping room with me and I said if you don't want this one I, I'll take it because I don't have something like this yeah in my quiver and he goes okay so he ended up taking it though hmm. but yeah so what are you mainly making nowadays i'm making uh you know my i guess you could say my forte is like the high performance longboard because that works at the bay up to double overhead even you know you can you can surf a, a high performance longboard in a lot of big in big surf but the problem is they're going to break because one time you get caught inside even at six foot and you have a leash or even without a leash there's too much area that doesn't sink. It's distributed too long. So even if it's, you know, I don't care if it's three inches in thick stringer, it'll break at the bay because powerful waves. But I make more that, and then, you know, I go to the retro, and now I'm making a model. A lot of the girls have been ordering my boards lately, the young girls. And, you know, I got, you know, it's good to have, uh, be popular, to be a shaper. This guy is so important. And, like, so Coral, in, she owns the Ohan Surf Shop. She's a super good surfer. Her family, she's married to a Hawaiian, uh, Chandler, you know, Moku. And uh, they got some kids, Legend and Mananalu. And they, they're they doing so good. They're so young. They're surfing Pipeline already. No way. And I, I, saw, I talked to uh, um, Kyborg, and I said, Kai, can you, can you believe Legend? He's surfing Pipeline. He goes, oh, yeah, that's what they do, man. We get them out there. He goes, that, that's where they got to start. Pipeline, it's eight years old. Wow. Pulling in the barrel. It's Crazy. like, God, I would never think of that back in the day, yeah? Yeah. What they can do now, the, the talent. No. They start so young here. So crazy. There's nothing else to do. Yeah. Except maybe play soccer. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, final question for yeah. everybody is just, what was the last surfboard that you rode personally? My, I mean the last board that I ride right now? It's the, my performance is epoxy. Yeah. It's EPS a, foam? EPS foam. Um, I have, a, I have like, uh, three longboards. I have a, a classic nose rider that's six, you know, that's like nine six and glass real strong and heavy for small wave for just walking. Not as good as I used to be as trying to get to the tip, but I still can a little bit. And then I got the, I'm making, I just made an uh, in between model. I don't know what to call it yet, but I'm going to give it a name. But it's like nine three, but it's got the old with the new. It's got the, you know, it's got the 60 40 rail. It's got, um, more V in the back and a little bit of edge in the very back but it's got a deep concave and the narrow narrower nose I've got I'm going a little not as wide now in the nose what's the, what's the fin setup the fin setup is single fin no okay. that uh, that one's a single fin okay because a lot of the girls that I've been making boards for that are corals kind of like crew corals just all the girls with like coral has like all these longboards at her house just lined up a lot of them are mine and the kids use them and so she tells them, if you want one of these, go to Mark. You know, so thank God for people like her and other people that lo love my boards that they talk good about me. So, you know, that's what keeps me going. And, and, you know, I really appreciate that. And I'm stoked to do it. You know, people, some guy asked me the other day, when did you start shaping? I go, well, not really, started really not doing it until about, 
97 or 98 and he goes you're kidding me you had all that bottled up in you for all those years and you didn't shape and i go yeah i guess so if you could call it like that you know that's funny <laughs> but yeah so you know i have that and then my performance epoxy's you know it's got a uh, double barrel v so there's a little more speed and i have that tail rocker see i always use that tail rocker a little bit more a little farther forward and um yeah and i don't like too much nose rocker okay yeah what do you like about the eps epoxy combo i like the epoxy because they're lively and like i can get that board up to speed quick and if i'm at the point and i need to get you know get that thing going the uh, polyesters are good but it takes a little bit longer to get the speed going but when you know there's there's a the good and bad for both though you know that you know the pros and cons because epoxy in the wind isn't that good you know, get you know. I'm dropping in. If there's a wind that turns southeast and a chop coming at you, it's terrible. Right. I can't even get. I hate it because yeah. it's bouncing and it's and it's. But it, when it's lively, and I've always liked the epoxy since that Gary McNabb nectar that right. I, that I called magic, and so I've always had that. That's it, that fit me. You know, my front foot surfer, and so then I I you know that's nine foot and that's a tri fin two plus one, and then I have the single fins too okay yeah i used to have like um more in my quiver you know guns and semi guns and then you know a shortboard you know stopped a while back <laughs> shortboarding yeah. just could you know can't compete yeah 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 awesome well dude this was amazing thank well, you well, for thank so you. much story well, thanks for coming over So sharp when you're not looking in the evening And all the friends that you once knew and left behind They kept you safe and so secure Amongst the books and all the records of your lifetime What will happen in the morning When the world gets so crowded That you can't look out the window in the morning Mark mentioned Terry Chung a few times my interview with Terry is scheduled for release on May 13th, so you can look forward to that in about a month. I've got images of Papa Sal and his boards on surfsplendorpodcast.com, where we also have a comment section, and you can leave a comment for Mark. I will make sure that he sees that if you do. You can also click over to our donation page to support our work. I've got images of Jeff Timponi's nub model built in Maui Leaflight Construction. But the fin placement on those things is, is pretty important. In fact, I probably marked the fins before I put the channels in just to make sure everything fit properly. But it, but it's it's just, you know, for me, I guess I've done enough boards so where it just, I know where I want the fins to be in relationship to the board. You know, the, the, the back quads, I've been pushing them a little closer together and running them a little, for, you know, a little more vertical. And that seems to make it ride less like a fish, almost like a double single back there. I mean, you know, double center fins. When I bring the bottom up with a little bit of V, those corners on the swall or on the tips of the back get nice and thin. So they're super easy to sink. Um, Cause you kind of got to get your foot back on that wide of a tail. Right. You know, you can't have your foot too far forward or it will feel a little bit weird. So part of the, of conquering the whole thing is figuring out where to get your foot as far back as you can. You know, the wider tails, especially here on Maui, 
they're going to work because they're going to give you more surface area, more lift, you know, the channels to give a direction. But that being said, you, I, my theory, theory is, is that to have a little V back there is going to help it go rail to rail. I, I, that's one thing I, I stress to try to do with our boards is make them more user-friendly, easier rail-to-rail -rail transitions, not only with the bottom contours, but with the fin placements. Um, and, and around here in Maui, it's, it's, it's not like it's the North Shore of Oahu. You know, people ride racy, racy boards here, but I don't think it's that necessary at all times. There's a lot of softer waves here. Um, fun, you know, great surf, but it's not top to bottom barrels all the time, like Pipe or Rockies or Sunset. You know, this just doesn't have the juice. Yeah. It's, you can use, definitely use the width to your advantage, both in the middle of the board and out the tail. The nub, that bat-tailed channel bottom custom built to your specs, a donation of any size will get you entered to win this, on Venmo at Surf Splendor or surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. We have a PayPal button set up there. We recommend just clicking it and setting up a $5 monthly donation. That goes a really long way towards keeping this content coming and increasing the quality and frequency. The Timponis have been donors since the day that we set up this PayPal account, probably four years ago now. So huge thank you to Jeff and Nick Timponi, and a thank you to all of you listeners who support our work. Hugely appreciated. I've got Jeff Hackman on the podcast next week. Papa Sal spoke a bit about building boards for Jeff and his son, Ryan. Hackman's episode is really amazing. I was checking my recording equipment every few minutes while we were rolling just to make sure that I was capturing it all and not botching anything. Uh, the guy has a really amazing story and he does such a great job, a really kind of candid, sincere um, telling of it. So I'm really excited to share that with you. And then Scott and I have a new episode of Spit this week that just dropped and I'll be on the grit with Chaz Smith on Friday. So look forward to that. Until then, of course, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to stay out of the ocean, specifically stay six feet away from everyone for the next couple of weeks so that we can get back to life and surf. All right, see you next week.